Hello and welcome to the podcast from Holy Trinity Westerhales. We're delighted that you've joined us for this week's podcast and pray that you would be blessed through it. Well, we're going to uh, be looking at God's words in Job. Uh, we'll be looking at a few verses moving around a little bit, but um, let's just bow our heads. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Yes, Lord, we thank you that you're alive, Lord Jesus. You're living, and like your word, you're living and active. And through your word, you're active in our lives, you're speaking to us, you're able to point out um, things that are wrong in our lives and bring that conviction that leads us into right living and into truth. And you're able to encourage us through your promises, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. As we come to your word this morning, as we begin this uh, new series, when God turns up, Lord, would you uh, be in every part of it, speaking to us. And may the speaker decrease now, so that Jesus Christ of Nazareth would increase for we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Amen. One of my uh, sort of more common prayers as I leave the house every morning is that uh, there'll be divine encounters. There'll be evangelistic opportunities. There'll be a chance, if I'm being humble, just a chance to bring God into the conversation. And maybe you pray a sort of similar prayer as you leave the house in the morning. And, and if you've done that, or you've been a Christian for any length of time, you, you'll have sometimes got a response when uh, you brought God into the conversation and someone said something like, then where is he? <laughs> you know, where is he? Where is, where is God uh, in all this? Uh, and that can kind of throw, throw us a bit. But what... What do you think would happen if God didn't just turn up in conversation, God turned up for real? Like God turned up for real, like visibly, like you could see him. <laughs> what do you think that experience would be like? I think we've all prayed that prayer, God, I really need you to turn up right now. You've all been in situations, and you might be going through a situation right now where you've, that's been the prayer, Lord, I really need you. I need you to show up now. I need you to turn up now. Uh, I, I've been praying that. I find myself crying that this week as I had uh, one ear on the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and one ear in God's Word, and I find myself literally weeping uh, as our own denomination, as the Church of Scotland, who, which I love, um, openly is rebelling against God's word, against his laws. And that brings a great sadness. And, and of course, I'm crying out to God, I'm God, we really need you to turn up, don't we? We need God to turn up. We need you to turn up, God. And I'm crying out to God, but what if God really did turn up? And in the Old Testament, we have lots of very exciting stories of where God actually 
turns up. He shows himself visibly. And that might seem really strange because on one level, the Bible says no one can see God. But by the end of that experience, that is experience that's often overwhelming, as you can imagine, or sometimes that God is not recognized at first, but only later, but everyone's left at the end of it by saying, I've seen the Lord. I've seen God. And we're going to be looking in this series at some of those instances right throughout the Old Testament where people were left at this, in this situation where they went, I've seen God. I've met with God. God turned up. Now, theologians have a fancy word for that. Of course, they do. They always have a fancy word for it. It's, it's the word theophany. Um, there it is. That's just a dictionary definition, a visible manifestation to humankind of God or a God. It comes from two Greek words, very simple. One you'll know, theos, which means God, and phanin, which means to cause to appear. So these are the instances where God causes himself to appear to people. And this morning, I want to look at that. And we're going to be looking particularly at God's servant, um, Job. The, all these instances, every single one, because it's a bit of an introduction, uh, all these instances do have the same function in that they all point us to the promised one who was to come. They all point us to the Messiah, to Jesus who was to come. So when we come across these stories, we're going to find within them lots of little clues there to, to Jesus. We know it's Jesus now, but at that time they wouldn't have known it's Jesus. And so there's lots of clues that we're going to see. It's going to point us to Christ. And this isn't just a theoretical exercise. This is what Moses spoke about when he cried out to the Lord, Exodus 33, 13, and he said to the Lord, show me your ways that I might know you and may find favor in your sight. So Moses cries out to God, and Moses realized that if God shows me his ways of working, then that'll lead me into a better understanding, and I might know God, and I might find favor in his sight. And when we see these instances where God shows up in a real, tangible, visible way, what we're seeing there is that we learn God's ways. And when we learn God's ways, we come to know God better. And that's what I want, and that's what my prayer is for this series, that as we look at God's ways and look at the way God manifests himself, look at the way God shows himself to human beings like you, like me, when we look at them, we'll learn what God's ways are so that we might know him better and so that we might find favor in his eyes. And of course, this is the way the Old Testament functions. I've used an illustration for many years, decades, uh, decades now. Um, it's an illustration that uh, came to me um, from, a, a, from a, a fragrance bottle that was on my shelf. Uh, it was the very first uh, fragrance bottle, uh, aftershave sort of thing that I'd ever bought. It was called CK1. This, this is the first time. It was released back in 1994. 
Yeah? It's still on sale today, which is lucky for me because I can still use it as an illustration and that. And uh, uh, th this, this, was the f this was the first, off to university, making my, I must have been after the girls or something like that, where I was going to make myself smell like, bought this with my own money. And uh, had this on the shelf for years and years, obviously didn't use it. And, uh, but I, 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 saw it, I saw it one day, and I saw it, I saw this CK1. And I used it as an illustration, as a m sort of memory to what the overarching story of the Old Testament is. Because the story, the, 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 the two big themes of the Old Testament are covenant, the way God has a relationship with people, covenant, and kingdom, the way God rules the world. Covenant and kingdom, CK, all pointing to the one who was to come, the promised one, the Messiah, the, the Christ, the, the one God said would come to fulfill all things, all the promises that we find, we find there. If I was to preach this nowadays, I'd probably add one more thing to the overarching story of the, 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 the Old Testament since I gave that illustration maybe 20 years ago or something like that. I'd probably add presence as well as one of the overarching themes. So maybe there's three, covenant, kingdom, and if I took a wee bit of liberty with it, I would say the fact that that's a fragrance reminds us of God's presence as a fragrance of God's presence. I grew up on the Isle of Lewis. I grew up with a granny telling me stories of great revival and what God did at that time. And I just remember being astounded by some of the things that were going on, amazing, miraculous things when God turned up. But one of them that's always stood in, in my mind, always remembered, my granny told me how when God showed up and people would be meeting all night in people's homes, but what they would say was this, there was a lingering fragrance in the house or in the church because God had turned up and there's a fragrance of his presence. And so these are the, the big overarching themes of the Old Testament. And you're going you're gonna to see as we look at these theophany. I won't use that term too often, but these appearances of God. When God turns up, you'll see how this covenant and this kingdom and the presence of God all pointing to Jesus. You'll see it happening time and time again. So what about Job? We read about him uh, this morning. Job is known, you'll know a little bit about Job. Job is someone who suffered almost more than anyone else on the face of the earth. He lost his business, completely destroyed. Uh, he lost all his wealth, all his money, all his means of making money. All his children died. Um, his friends were no, were no comfort to him. He had a wife who despised him because he was still clinging to hope in God by his fingernails. And his wife just said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? She hated him for it. You're still trusting in God and look how he's treated you. And sometimes the way the story of Job is portrayed is that 
Job's okay with all the stuff that's happening because he's a really faithful man. But if you read the book of Job, Job's not happy about it at all. And he's looking for his five minutes with God. And when I meet with God, I'll have a few things to tell him about his justice. And I'll have a few things on my mind to get off my chest to tell him about the way he treats his own people who trust him and trust in him. Remember, Job was actually the most righteous man on the face of the earth, apparently. So he's a righteous man, and he's going to have his meeting with God. And God turns up at the end of the book of Job, where we read in chapter 38 all the way through to chapter 42. God turns up, and he shows himself to Job. But God appears in the form of a whirlwind. That's how God appears, the form of a whirlwind. And we'll see why that's the case in a few moments. Let me just read a few verses. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know how its dimensions were determined, and who did the surveying? What supports its foundations, and who laid its cornerstones as the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy? Where does the light come from, and where does the darkness go? Can you take it to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, Job, for you were born before it was all created, and you're so very experienced. Job thinks he's got a few things to tell God, and God turns up. (laughs) We all know someone, don't we? I think I've said this before. We, we all know someone who said, when I meet God, I'll have a few things to tell him. I'll have him on the ropes. No, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. When you meet with God, you will be silenced. This is what happened to Job. This is all he could respond with. Then Job replied to the Lord, verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 3, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will put my hand over my mouth in silence. I've said too much already. I have nothing more to say. There's a warning there for someone who thinks, yeah, when I meet with God, I'll be doing this to him. (laughs) You won't be wagging your finger at God. You'll have your hand over your mouth. Do you remember Isaiah He saw God in his temple. I don't know if that was in reality or in a vision. We're not sure, actually. It won't be in this particular series. But the moment Isaiah the prophet sees the Lord, what does he say? He says, I'm undone. Woe is me. I'm finished. I'm done for. And why does he say that? He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. People think they're going to have God on the ropes. They think they're going to be questioning God. But they'll have their hand over their mouth like Job. And this 
points us, remember, and it all points us towards the one who would come, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, who would come. How does it do that? It does it. It reminds us that when Jesus came, he silenced his enemies. They thought they could get him on the ropes. There's a wonderful story. There's many examples, but here's just one. Matthew 22. Listen to this story. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, remember, with his reply, they thought of their own fresh questions of their own to ask him. And one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Then surrounded by the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, he's the son of David. And Jesus responded, then why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, call him Lord? For David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David called him Lord, how can he be his son at the same time? No one could answer him. And after that, no one dared him to ask him any more questions. The Lord speaks to Job. He says, brace yourself. Brace yourself because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them. You're not going to question me, Job. I'm going to question you. None of us. I don't think any of us measure up to righteous Job in our living. But even Job, righteous man, good man, had his hand over his mouth. It all points us towards Jesus who would silence his enemies and they would fall silent before him. Now, when God appears to God in the whirlwind, why is this an appearance of God himself? How do we know that? Well, we know it because of something that Job says in uh, chapter 42. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything. Just after he's had this overwhelming experience and no one can stop you you ask, who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's I. And I was talking about things I did not understand, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Lord, I'd heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. So here's the whirlwind appearing to Job, and Job comes out of the whole experience, and he says, I've seen the Lord. I've met with the Lord. And that's called theophany. That's when God appears. I'd heard of you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes, and now I repent in dust and ashes, even though he's the most righteous man on earth, that meeting with God causes repentance. And this too points us towards Jesus, this appearing 
of God. Because we know that the Bible talks about that no one can see God. And so there's this paradox. No one can see God and live. And yet, there are so many stories within the Old Testament where people come to that place where they go, I have seen the Lord. How do we hold those two things together? Well, we hold them together in the person of Jesus, who famously said, he that's seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. If you've seen me, says Jesus, you have seen Father God. The Apostle John, he has a wonderful way of being able to sum up things that are really hard to get your head around. Paradoxes, things that on one hand you've got nobody can see God, and yet at the same time people said they did see God for real, visibly, saw God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but his only son, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And so we see the fulfillment. It's all pointing towards the one who would come, the promised one, Jesus who would come, who would be able to say, no one can see God, but now I'm here, says Jesus, you can. Because he that's seen me has seen the Father. And so even paradoxes, even things that we can't quite get our head around are met in the person of Jesus. And we begin to see, and begin to see with spiritual eyes. But there's also God appearing as a whirlwind might seem strange because even in its literal function, it also points us towards Christ. When I think of a, a whirlwind, I think of something pretty destructive. <laughs> You've seen the pictures on the TV of a whirlwind coming in and destroying everything in its path. You'll maybe know the saying that, uh, that says, uh, you sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. I think uh, George W. Bush used it in uh, the first Iraq war. That was, that's, what, that's what he used it for. But it actually comes from the Bible. It actually comes through the prophet Hosea, chapter 8. This idea that Israel, who had turned their back on the Lord, was sowing the wind. They were planting the wind. But because they were doing that, they were going to reap a whirlwind of destruction. And as I was studying it this week, remember with one ear on the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and one ear on what God are you saying? We need you to turn up in this. I found so many parallels and I just want to read to you just a few verses from the prophet Hosea when he speaks about Israel sowing the wind and then reaping the whirlwind. Don't worry if it's a bit small on the screen. You can just listen along. This is Hosea 8. See if you can just pick up how God spoke to his people, how God warned his people when they turned their back on him and on his word. Sound the alarm. The enemy descends like an eagle on the people of the Lord. For they have broken my covenant and they have revolted against my laws. How we've done that in the Church of Scotland today. Jesus, who is so clear, so clear about our identity, 
He reinforces what Genesis teaches, that in the beginning, God made mankind. He made them in his image, male and female. He made them. And it's God who gives us our identity. But we have strange teaching today that makes no reference to our Christian heritage and the Word of God or to science or to common sense. And says our identity is offered whatever we want to make it. But Jesus reinforced, not Old Testament, Jesus reinforced, reinforced the message. He said, in the beginning, God created them. And he created them male and female. He did it to avoid any confusion. And anything that goes beyond that sows confusion amongst young people as we see today. And those that sow that sort of confusion, the darkest pits of hell are reserved for them. Jesus spoke about that. If you sow confusion amongst our youngest people, there is little hope for you. Save you turn to Christ. Save you turn to Christ. Jesus was unequivocal about marriage as well. He said it flowed from there because in the next sentence, he said, for this reason... A man shall leave his mother and his father, and he shall be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They'll be one together, united. And what God has brought together, what God has ordained, what God has chosen, let not man separate, let not man destroy And when the church adopts the values of the world, we begin to rip out the very foundations of what God has spoken. And of course, that's what the enemy wants. And what does it do? It doesn't only sow confusion, it brings destruction. And it'll bring destruction, just as it did on the people of Israel, it'll bring destruction upon the church as well. Now Israel pleads with me, Help us. We acknowledge you, God, but it's too late. It's like these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. The people of Israel have rejected what is good, said the prophet. How true is that in our day? We've rejected what is good by calling good evil and light darkness, and darkness light and evil good. They've rejected what is good, and now their enemies will chase after them. Church of Scotland, the decisions that were lauded on the news this week that the first minister praised will result in our enemies coming after us. That's what will happen. The people have appointed kings and princes but not with my consent. What was happening in Israel is they were deciding, we're going to have the leadership that we decide to make, and God had not consented to it. God had not spoken to them about it. <laughs> the church does the same today. It appoints business leaders in its most senior positions. God hadn't consented to it. He'd never spoken about it. 
They make idols for themselves from their silver and gold. They've brought about their own destruction. When it gets desperate, the church might think, and I include ourselves in this, it's not somebody else. Because there's only one church. We can't run away from that judgment. We must stand up and be counted as one of the Lord's people. They've made idols for themselves out of their silver and gold. The church thinks that if we shuffle around the finances a bit, we'll solve the church's problems. It's not going to work. Oh, Samaria, I have rejected this, this idol you've made. My fury burns against you. How long will you be incapable of innocence? This calf idol you worship was crafted by your own hands. It is not God. Therefore, it must be smashed to bits. They have planted the wind and will reap the whirlwind. And we've seen that whirlwind sweep through the national church, and I take no pleasure in that. God can revive things. But the reality is we're celebrating 50 years of Holy Trinity. It's our, it's our, it's our Jubilee year this year. And it's been so exciting to see just that cause of God's faithfulness. But the national picture is different. 50 years ago, there were 1.3 million members of the Church of Scotland. There's now 300,000. Tell me a whirlwind doesn't swept through the church and through the nation. It has. It has. We're in a different time. But there is hope and there is a promise to the righteous. It's a wonderful promise. It's a, I came across it this week and it just filled my heart with hope. This was, this was the promise, Proverbs 10, uh, 25. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more. But the righteous has an everlasting foundation. The NIV says the righteous stand firm forever. Amen? When the whirlwind passes, we're going through the time of the whirlwind. But that won't be forever. That's just God coming with his winnowing fork. And with his pruning shears, he is the gardener. But when the whirlwind passes, the wicked arm no more but the righteous will stand firm forever. And maybe you're thinking, I'm not righteous. You're not, in one level. You're not as, certainly not as righteous as Job. He was a righteous man. But I've got good news for you this morning. Here's the good news of the gospel, that there is a righteousness from God that is available by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That through Jesus' death on the cross, the promised one, the righteous one who went to the cross, fully innocent, fully pure, his righteousness can become yours. It can be imputed to you. It can be reckoned to your account through faith in him. And you can come to Jesus today. I think that's a, not just to us as individuals, that's to us as a church as well. To everywhere where Jesus is preached, wherever Jesus is proclaimed in any church, no matter what is going on in the nation, no matter what is going on in the denomination, you can come to Christ and you can call upon him. And in repentance and faith, 
The whirlwind might pass through, but just like the whirlwind came, and Job remained unharmed. Job was not destroyed. In fact, there's an amazing thing at the end of Job. It says, God blessed Job in the latter part of his life more than he did in the first part of his life. And his first, the first part of his life was pretty amazing until all the bad stuff started to happen. But God blessed him in the latter. That'd be a good testimony to have. That, that God's going to bless my life from this point on more than he has up to this point. That's a promise for the righteous. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked are no more. But the righteous are an everlasting foundation. Why don't we just bow our heads for a moment? And uh, I'll just invite, um, if uh, one of the elders wants to go and get the older children, if you go and see Haley, she'll bring through because the, the older ones are going to be sharing communion with us. Uh, so if one of the elders wants to go and do that, that'd be great. Lord, as we come to you, we realize that you have a history of turning up, of showing up, of showing up in unexpected places and in unexpected ways. And we thank you, Lord, that you met with Job in a whirlwind with all the wonderful promises and the fearful things that fill our hearts when we think about that. We pray for our church. We pray for the church nationally. Once a prince amongst the nations, sending missionaries to every part of the globe, bringing the gospel to China and to Africa. Lord, we can see the fruit of that today. Amazing, incredible. And now turning its back on your word. Lord, have mercy on us, though we don't deserve it. Lord, have mercy upon us. Turn us again to you, just as you sent that whirlwind, and eventually your people turn back to you. Do not utterly destroy us. Keep us close to Jesus, that we might walk in your righteousness, so that when the whirlwind comes and is here, we may not be swept away but may we stand firm, having that solid foundation in you. Thank you that Job knew that one day he would in his flesh see God and he would stand upon the earth, that he would see the true righteous one. Lord, help us to understand what you're saying to us in these days. Lord, if I've misspoken in any way, I pray that those words would just fall to the ground, never to be remembered again. But where you're speaking to us, speaking to our hearts, calling us to faithfulness, calling us to take our stand, even in the whirlwind, Lord, encourage our hearts. Give us strength. Give us courage. We need you, Lord. We need you to turn up. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake.
Amen.